every week I, I do a lot of meetings with people, and a lot of my peers are like, man, how do you do some meetings and write a sermon? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, but what I know is, as I have different conversations with people, God shows me things, and as we discuss scripture and things of that nature, it starts to speak to me in ways that I had never seen as I'm processing through with someone else. One of the things I want to challenge you with as we open God's word today, and as we walk through it is, man, if all you do is hear it, you've, you've miscalculated your faith. If all you do is hear the scripture, but you don't put it into action, and you don't obey what it says, you not only are not doing your faith correctly, but you miss out on the opportunity to, opportunity to grow. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to take notes. I want to encourage you to, to think about takeaways, as we'll discuss later on in the service. I want us to have this opportunity to engage with God's word, because really, if all we do is hear it, we've missed it. But how are we going to put into practice what God is saying to us? This Sunday is known as Palm Sunday, the Sunday that after Jesus had essentially completed his public and private ministry, all of it had been leading up towards coming into Jerusalem, and he came in on a donkey where people that were praising his name because they believed he was the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that was going to come and overthrow the Roman government, was coming into town on this donkey, as Zechariah, the prophet, had said many hundred years before. And Jesus comes into town, and the reason he is coming is because his destination is the cross. And for a lot of us, we think Jesus is a good teacher. He came to do a lot of good things and be a humanitarian, but he came to die for mankind's sin. But I always like to remind us that Easter's coming, and he didn't stay on that cross, but we have a risen Savior who changes everything. This is about, as we're going to study today in John chapter 2, this is actually three years prior to that. There's three Passovers that are talked about in the gospel according to John. And so let's look at John chapter 2, verse 12. Here's what it says. After this, remember that, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. After this, if you weren't with us last week, or maybe you haven't read the context in which this is talked about, what we talked about last week was where Jesus and his disciples and his mom were all at a wedding. And his mom asked him to help the groom not be embarrassed by turning water. Well, he didn't, she didn't even realize he was going to turn water into wine. So Jesus performs this miracle that is so supernatural to some. And yet it is so subtle to others. Today we're going to see a very subtle miracle. And I don't know if most of us have ever seen this miracle, ever seen exactly what happens in this text, but there is a miracle within these words. And so he or she who has ears, let them hear. Up until this point, Jesus had called five different men to be his disciples, his disciplined pupils, to follow Jesus, to walk with him both physically and spiritually. There was Andrew. What's Andrew known for? Being Peter's brother. That's messed up. So there's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. There was Peter, who we know a lot about. He tended to be the spokesperson for the disciples. He did a lot of silly things and did a lot of great things. There was Nathaniel. And then there was what most people believe. There was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So these were Jesus's five. These were his posse, his entourage, his fab five, if you will. Verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
Like I said, this is the first of three Passovers which John mentions. And Jews would select, based on the Passover, they would select a lamb on the 10th of the month, and they would celebrate Passover on the 14th day of the lunar month of Nisan. And they would slaughter this lamb between 3 and 6 p.m. There was very specific things on the night of the feast. And Passover, in particular, if you're not familiar with it, it commemorates the deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. When the angel of death passed over the homes in Egypt where doorposts were sprinkled with blood. And Jesus' journey to Jerusalem for Passover was this standard procedure for every devout male who was over the age of 12. Jewish pilgrims crowded into Jerusalem for what is known as the greatest of Jewish feasts. Verse 14, in the temple, he found people selling cattle. Uh Uh-oh, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Uh Uh-oh. See, people would come from all over to come to the Passover. It was a rite of passage to be near the temple on Passover. And since people came from all surrounding areas, you have to think about this logically, and they would come a very long trek, and they would come to sacrifice animals, it was very inconvenient and difficult to bring their own animal with them because they didn't have public transportation, they didn't have cars, they didn't have Uber or Lyft. And so there were these merchants who noticed a very great opportunity. It had presented itself financially, and they weren't going to pass this up. I picture a gift shop. How many of you have been to Disneyland? Okay, a couple of you and a few that are totally lacking. All right, so Disneyland's awesome for the most part. At least my wife tells me, and I have to pay for it, but it's, it's great. And, and when you come off of, let's say, to- the Toy Story ride, which is really fun. You're shooting all the, the little things. When you come off of the ride, as you're about to walk off of the ride, what do you run into? The gift shop. And now all of a sudden you have to, to look at, oh, I could buy Buzz Lightyear, and your kids or my kids are like tagging on and grabbing me, going, hey, you could buy me this. And I'm like, no, no, I can't. And so all of a sudden we're being accosted with things that we should purchase. I kind of see this context somewhat similar. Maybe you're at the airport, and you're walking through the airport, and you see the gift shop, and it says, San Jose or the city on a sweatshirt, right? And you're like, I don't want to own that because I live here. That's stupid, right? (laughs) But what it's like is you're headed towards your intended target and you get accosted by people that are trying to push off their agenda. You ever been to the mall and someone at a kiosk in the middle of the mall as you're walking from Old Navy to the Apple store? You know, all, all of a sudden as you're walking, someone's at a kiosk and they're like, hey, do you have a cell phone? You're like, I have three, leave me alone, right? But that's what it's like when they were walking towards the temple to worship their Lord. There were people there that were trying to be opportunistic because they saw this opportunity. My hope is that we, as God's people, would never share our faith like someone at a kiosk trying to just get someone's attention. But here's the real travesty. If we attempt to profit off of God's name, we don't get it. And it's very clear in scripture. See, Jesus spoke of money over 200 times. And here's the great part. Every time he spoke about money, wasn't talking about money. He's talking about our hearts. So as believers, as followers of Jesus, we ought to be generous, not just with our treasure, but with our time and with our talents. Because as we'll see today, all three of those things were given to us by God. But if we're attempting to profit, if attempting to profit is our sole purpose of our faith, you don't have faith. You have worship of self-preservation. 
And God asks you to cast that away. See, God doesn't look kindly on those that try to control everything. We'll see that in verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. What? Jesus is getting pretty upset, isn't he? The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these three gospels that we read before the book of John talk about a cleansing of the the temple, and it's later on in those gospels. And what some commentators try to do is they try to take this this cleansing of the, ta- the, the Passover, or around the Passover, the cleansing of the temple, and the cleansing of the temple later on, and they try to merge them together, but it's not correct theologically, spiritually, or biblically. Jesus had just been identified as the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and yet many people did not recognize him or, and don't miss this, the authority that comes with the responsibility of being the Son of God. You see what I mean there? It's not just about being the Son of God, but there is a responsibility, and because there is responsibility, there is authority. And so many times when we're working in our job or even in the church, we want to have a better title. We want to have more authority, but you have to understand with authority comes responsibility. I think Spider-Man said something about that. So here's the thing. Many do not think that you can have righteous anger. And most of the time, when you're angry, let's just be honest, almost 10 out of 10 times, it is not righteous. It is more about you. It is more about your agenda. But when the Son of God sees people making a mockery out of God's house and out of his name, he intervenes. Don't miss that. If you're taking notes, look at how God intervenes. When the holiness of God and his worship is at stake, Jesus took fast and furious action. Don't start thinking about Vin Diesel. He took fast and furious action because he did not like that these people were making a mockery of his God's house. So here's here's the struggle and, and real talk here, okay? Often when we're doing the church thing, think about when you woke up this morning. Did you do it out of duty or did you do it out of devotion? Did you do it out of you feel that you have to, or did you do it out of the fact that God deserves your praise and you want to be with his people, even though sometimes they kind of irk you? Anyone? Just me? I'm the only one that gets irked here. Okay, that's cool. And making worship for God out to be heartless or mindless will always be something that's opposed by God, his word, and his spirit. Oh, I forgot to give you the disclaimer this morning. Are you ready? You ready for the disclaimer? The disclaimer is this. For some of you, this will be your last Sunday because of this text. I just want you to know that based on what it says. All right, all right, keep going. So we see in the book of Amos, this minor prophet, we see the word of God being spoken through this minor prophet named Amos who is addressing Israel's heartless and ritualistic worship. They had missed it. They had been doing it for a while, but then they started to get comfortable and they started to think, well, I worship because that's what I'm supposed to do. And if someone were to ask the Peter of Israel at this point, hey, why do you do what you do? Why are you worshiping God? Why are you doing the offerings and the sacrificial system and all of that? I bet you they could be quoted saying, because we've always done it this way. We bring offerings because we've always done it. We worship because we've always done it. We obey because we've always done it. You know what the problem is with that? Everything. 
And I don't want you to miss this because what you do in the kingdom of God, what you do for the kingdom of God is not the point. It's why you do what you do. Here's the truth. So many people in the church today are just comfortably waiting to go to hell because they just want to come and put in their time, but they don't have a heart that adores God. Amos says this in chapter 5. This is God speaking through him, but this is kind of harsh, so remember who says it. Don't get mad at me. God said this. He said, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps or your organ or your piano or your guitar or your bass. Sorry, that was me. All right. But let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. We have a God that doesn't expect worship from his children. He demands it because he is worthy. But if you don't want to worship him, what does that say about your adoption in the kingdom of God? Okay, I'll let that sit there. And worship for God is not bad. But when performed with a corrupt heart, even the most special festivals and offerings were despised by the Lord. Why? Because they were just talk. They weren't from the heart. So hear me, here's your takeaway if you want to wrestle with the takeaway in this one. Worship is not an event, it's a lifestyle of honor. Worship is not an event, it is a lifestyle of honor. It's an honor to be in God's presence, it's an honor to be in God's house, it's an honor to have the faith to worship God in the first place. When many people use Sunday mornings to be a day that they can just catch up on rest, catch up on their busy lives, to continue to run the rat race, to finish the errands they couldn't do during the week. But when a son or daughter of the God Most High realizes that they know the Lord, they also realize they get to worship God on Sunday mornings. They get to bring honor through music and, and the word being preached and proclaimed and listened to and done and through the resources that we've been given to bring honor to our God. But I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I'm going to whisper it just so those in the cheap seats can't hear it. All right? You ready? Sundays are not the only day that you can worship God. <laughs> Mind blown, right? Obedience is worship. Obedience to what God has to say is worship of God. They're like, but there, no, there aren't three chords in obedience. Yes, I know. But obedience is worship to God. You can worship God in your everyday lives by actually doing what he says. Obeying him, not out of duty, but out of devotion to his doctrine. To a God who loves you more than you'll ever be able to comprehend. You know why I know that? Because on Friday of this week, this coming week, we are going to celebrate the fact that Jesus hung on a cross. But he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I, could become the righteousness of God. That's why we come devoted, because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So I have a heart check for you. I have a heart check that is going to hurt a little. Why do you worship? Why do you worship? Why do you give of your income 
if you give tithes and offerings? Why do you give of your time? Some of you worship people were here early. Yuck. But why? Why do you listen to a sermon each week? Why do you pray? Why do you identify yourself with Jesus and the perfect life lived and the death on the cross that defeated what the hold that sin had over mankind? And why do you identify yourself with the resurrection of Christ? Do you do it because you grew up with it? Do you do it because you feel like you have to? Or do you do it because you're devoted to Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished, not just for you, but for your family and for the family of God? All right. We'll make it a little easier. Verse 16. Oh, wait, no, sorry. It's not easier. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a Whole Foods. Sorry, into a market. Stop turning my, my father's house into some type of place where, where you just come and try to purchase things. He talks about doves. And doves were considered an offering for the poor. And these merchants were trying to profit not just off of the religious and the well-to-do, but also off of the religious and the poor. And they were attempting to profit greatly off of worship and adoration to God. But here's the thing I don't think we notice. They were also effectively giving people reasons and excuses to stay away from the act of worship of God. Let me let that sit with you for a second. I wonder if any of us do that today. That we actually give people excuses not to follow Jesus. That we give excuses to people to not actually worship God. Maybe it's not by selling, you know, a Jesus is my BFF t-shirt. That's not what I'm talking about. But by making it harder for those around us to understand grace or even hear about it. Do you think maybe you and I are guilty of making Christianity to be more about us being gooder rather than godly? In the book of Acts, we see the apostles spreading the message of the gospel, that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he ascended to heaven, that he is exalted, that one day he's coming back. And those who have trusted Christ by repenting are adopted into the kingdom of God as sons and daughters. And these apostles have been preaching this, and people have been hearing it, and people have been coming to faith. And at first it was the Jews, and then it was the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the people that didn't have the bloodline that everyone, that the Jews kind of held a lot of pride in. And then they had this council where, because they kept seeing Gentiles want to follow Jesus, shocking. And then they had this council where James and Peter and a bunch of the apostles and a bunch of Pharisees, the teachers of the law, got together and basically had a city council meeting. And here's what it says in Acts 15, verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Let me, let me read that again in today's vernacular. The Gentiles must come to church every Sunday. The Gentiles better worship with a choir the Gentiles better worship with an organ. The Gentiles better worship without instruments. The Gentiles have to worship with some song that Hillsong did five years ago. And they're required to keep the law of Moses. And then the apostles and the elders met to consider this question, to ponder this question. Verse 7, after much discussion, 
Peter, of course it was Peter, got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart, don't miss that. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by what? Giving them the Holy Spirit. Just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, not you and you people, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were ever able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they Could it be that maybe sometimes the way we even share the gospel with people, we're adding to the gospel message by expecting someone to adhere to the traditions that man has made up that are not found in scripture? Hear me. Don't get self-righteous because people sin differently than you do. Don't get self-righteous because people sin differently than you do. We are all even at the foot of the cross, and we have all failed and fallen crazy short of God's glory. But God said, you don't have to go out like that. I'm sending my son, and he's going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Those of us who have truly received grace have a lifestyle, hear me, a lifestyle of giving away grace. Those that are forgiven, forgive people, right? Because you've been changed, you've been forgiven, and, and a friend of mine, Ian, some of you guys know him, a friend of mine quoted this yesterday as I was writing my sermon at Pete's. I was spending time looking at stuff, and then I went on Facebook because I have ADD, apparently. And as I saw this quote, it was so good, and I couldn't find anyone else that said it, so I'm going to attribute it to Ian. He said this, religion is concerned with your behavior, but the gospel is concerned with your identity. That was good. And a few weeks ago, we taught on the fact that religion is about you and you trying to control it, but relationship is about Jesus and making sure that because of what he's done, we're in right relationship with God. So let me ask you this again, and I'm going to continue to ask you this until God takes me home or until y'all get me fired. Where do you get your identity from? Where do you get your identity from? Because, seriously, guys, it would be so easy to just go through the motions of this faith and to get your identity from what you do rather than what Christ has done. Or to get your identity from the titles that you've accumulated either at work or by having kids or being a spouse or maybe even doing ministry and totally forget about the actual title that is given to Jesus, which is the Christ, and that's why we obey him. So what competes for your worship and adoration of God? Could it possibly be a good thing that you've created into a God thing? Could it be religion rather than a redeemer? Could it just be that you want to control how, when, and where you worship God rather than have a lifestyle which is full of worship that requires all the control to be given back to Jesus? Because as we see in this text, Jesus has all the control anyway. Verse 16. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Stop turning my father's house into a grocery store. 
Jesus not only in this moment identified himself as God, the Father's only son, but he also rebuked these entrepreneurs, didn't he? Stop your current practice. Stop what you're doing. What you're doing is not worshipful to God. It is all about self-preservation and how you can get ahead. So stop and change direction. What is stopping and changing direction? It means to repent. It means to stop doing what you're doing and to face Christ and say, Lord, I'm going to do what you asked me to do. So here's my question. Have you repented? Have you repented? See, in the American church, we don't have a belief problem. We have an obedience problem, don't we? So have you repented? Have you not only repented of your sin, but have you repented of the things that you're allowing to control you that are good, that you're making God? Have you repented or have you just acknowledged that Jesus existed like the demons? Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is some powerful language. And Jesus in this moment is quoting David, who writes in the Psalms, in Psalm 69, verse 9, to indicate that Jesus would not tolerate irreverence towards his God. When David wrote the psalm, he was being persecuted because of the zeal towards God's house and his defense of God's honor. And the disciples were afraid that Jesus was going to be persecuted the same type of way that David was. But yet we know it was so much worse. Verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Okay, this question is so important. These Jewish authorities did not want to hear the rebuke. They just wanted identification from Jesus. Doesn't that sound like most of us? Prove yourself to me, God, then I'll believe in your name. Show me a sign, God, and then I'll obey you. As soon as you question God in that demeanor, as if you deserve him to prove himself to you, you've proven that no signs will actually do, but that you're an insolent opponent, which means you don't care what the facts are. You just want to be right, and you just want to argue, and you just want, to, you want nothing to do with the Savior. You just want to argue. Verse 19, then Jesus answered them, <laughs> destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. Woo! That escalated quickly, didn't it? You can kind of tell Jesus is a little worked up in this moment. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. What? Right? Like, I don't know if he did that, but like. But look how he gets misquoted in Mark 14, verse 58. We heard him say, this is when they were trying to put Jesus on trial to be murdered or to be killed. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. What? That's not what he said. But evil people love to change the story to justify themselves or their agenda, don't they? Jesus was referring to what was going to happen, that he is the temple. He is where God presides because he, spoiler alert, is God. But even then, it wasn't until later on that the disciples got it, right? It wasn't even until he rose from the dead that it started to make sense. John verse two, chapter 2, verse 20, 
they replied, this is their response to Jesus, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But the temple, John says, that he spoke of was his body. So once again, we've talked about this the past few weeks, the religious are always thinking about the physical rather than what Jesus is talking about, which is the eternal. But it's fair that these religious authorities didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, what he meant. He spoke in allegory, and it wouldn't make any sense if he were speaking about a physical temple. What are you talking about? It takes a long time to build a temple. But it is through, and please don't miss this, it is through the death and resurrection of Christ that temple worship in Jerusalem was destroyed. It's not about the steeple, y'all. It's all about the people. And it was reinstituted in the hearts of those who were built into a spiritual temple called the church. So this morning, you probably, possibly talked to someone, hey, I'm going to church. You are the church. You are the church. But we are not the church unless we're here together. So remember that. All right. Quiz time for you theology Bible nerds. Anyone? Just me? Okay. All right. Me and Brian. Hallelujah. Here's the question. Did you see the miracle? Did you see the miracle? Probably not, unless you're looking for it. See, Jesus comes in, and he throws over tables, and he drives out these merchants who are attempting to profit off of God's name, and then they address Jesus. But not one person attempts to physically restrain Jesus. Did you notice that? Some people want to argue, well, they were shocked by this. But he's messing with people's income. And when you mess with people's income, people start to get a little ornery, don't they? No one tried to physically restrain or attack Jesus. Not one person. Sure, they may have been stunned, but this is a level of crowd control that I think people have never seen. Because not only did he put the stars in the sky but he can even control a crowd if need be. So some of you, when you looked at the bulletin, maybe you noticed this. The name of the sermon is, these are not the droids you're looking for. Did anyone get excited? Daniel, back there. Sarah, hallelujah. All right, a couple of us. And here's the thing with this, is for those of you that are like, wait, I don't get it. I don't understand. Uh, let, me, let me show you. So in The New Hope, which was just known as Star Wars, but then they made a bunch of stuff so they could sell toys, right? Jar Jar, idiot. Anyway, so, so in The New Hope, Star Wars, you have Obi-Wan Kenobi, who's Luke Skywalker's mentor. I hope that's not a spoiler. You've had 42 years to watch it. Anyway, but Obi-Wan Kenobi is Luke Skywalker's mentor, and they're, they're kind of, they're on this planet, Nairobi, I think, and they're leaving. That's probably wrong, and someone's not going to question my theology. They're going to question my understanding of Star Wars. But the, they have these stormtroopers walk up, and just so you know, the stormtroopers are the guys in kind of the white plastic thing, and, and if you've ever watched Star Wars, you've seen the guy hit his head on the Death Star. That was pretty awesome. But they come up to Obi-Wan and Luke Skywalker and their droids, not Motorola, but their droids, and they have a conversation, and they go to Obi-Wan, who has the Force, and they say, we'd like to see your identification. And he swipes left, doesn't he? I had to check and make sure. I looked at a GIF. It's left, not right. He swipes left. And he says, you do not want to see our identification. And then the stormtroopers go, I do not want to see your identification. 
And then he says, we'd like to see your droids. And he says, you would not, these are not the droids you're looking for. And then they say, these are not the droids that we're looking for. And then they just continue on. That's pretty baller, all right? That's pretty awesome. But what Jesus did in this crowd was significantly better than that because his time had not come. And he leaves this crowd. And as we'll see in the book of John in particular, there are other times where he does things that would get people murdered, but his time had not come. Verse 22. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they, and don't miss this, and if you have your Bible open, underline this word, they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. I love that it says they believe the scripture because they're not talking New Testament. They are the New Testament. They're talking the Old Testament of what these prophets were saying would happen when the Messiah came. And it was through the miracle of the resurrection that his previous words and the scriptures were believed. So next week is Easter. We tackle the resurrection. We tackle how the Hebrew scriptures which we know as the Old Testament, foreshadowed what was to come one day. So I need you to hear this. The Old Testament was not superseded by the New Testament, no matter what some preachers in Atlanta want to say. Do you hear me? The Old Testament was foreshadowing towards what Christ came to do. And so because of that, we get a relationship with the Lord. We trust him, not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but throughout all the epistles through all the Old Testament, all pointing to the fact that you and I need a Savior because we cannot work our way to God. Can I get a testimony from somebody? So 2,000 years ago, in one week in particular, we are going to celebrate the most important cosmic event that's ever taken place, where death was defeated and Jesus called his shot. Verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. John is the author of this book, and he's constantly pointing to belief. In fact, he wrote this letter so that people would believe in Jesus' name as the Christ and have life in him abundantly. That's what he says in John chapter 20, verse 31. But as we see in the following verse, there was a bit of a misconception about what believing faith or believing belief or true belief actually looks like. Verse 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. If you're not in Christ, that should scare the hell out of you. If you are in Christ, that should give you so much joy that even though God knows your motives behind what you do, he loves you in spite of that. What a God. He knew what were in these people's hearts, and his time had not yet come to be put on the cross, but that didn't stop him from intervening and putting a stop to this heresy of trying to profit off of God's name. And through these signs... Through these miracles, he po it pointed to his deity. And we see, and it's what it said, that many believed in his name, Jesus, the name that's above every name. Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ. But these final two verses, 
They point us to the fact that God knows all things. Today, yesterday, tomorrow, and forever. And so hear me, if, if you're kind of, you like to wrestle with the text, you like to study it and look at what it says, let me give you just some advice. Look at this Bible and look at these words, understanding that God is in control. Because we tend to argue and play theological hopscotch when we start to go, well, God's kind of in control. But what we see in this passage is that he's fully in control at all times. And again, so many of us, we don't have a belief problem. We have an obedience problem. And God knows all things, and he knows all things about you and me. And one of the things that encourages me so much is that he even invested and loved on and poured into people like Judas. So why does that encourage you? Because there are some people that attend church every single week that have the opportunity that even though they're Judas, they have the opportunity to repent. And God gives us that opportunity over and over to actually do what he says. So if Jesus is truly your Lord, do what he says. You won't do it perfectly, but as you pursue him, you will, progress, you will progress, I promise. That was a lot of peas. As you pursue the perfect one, you will progress. That is evidence that you are pursuing him. Worship team, would you come on up? And I'm going to, as they come on up, I'm going to take you to this thing that I kind of stole from ministry in, in Denver. I asked for permission, so it's not totally stolen from them. But next week, this week, last week, every week that we come together, I want to make sure you hear the gospel. And I've talked about it, but I want to just be blatant. And I expect my microphone to stop working. I expect there to be an earthquake. I expect a bunch of stuff, but I don't care. I'm going to tell you the gospel. Because I want to make sure that we understand that when we stand before God, the last thing we'll ever say if we were a part of this church is, but I was never told. So let me give you this acronym. Next slide, Sam, please. You can't really tell because of the blue, but at the beginning where the dots are, those are kind of bold, and it is an acronym that says gospel. Here's what it says. God created us to be with him, but our sins separate us from God. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds, but paying the price for our sins, Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone for their justification will inherit eternal life. And life eternal is an experiential relationship with God through his only son, Jesus, which starts when you repent, you change direction, and you truly follow Christ. So I don't want you to miss it. I'm not going to hide the gospel from you. I want to make sure that you understand this is why we have our being, because there's nothing we can do to work our way to God, because God already worked his way to us. So I have three questions for you to diagnose your own heart. And these may be a little bit tough for a few of us. But here are three questions I want you to wrestle with. Heart check time. Do you believe in Jesus' name? Do you believe that he is who he says that he is, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah? And then have you repented? Again, it's not a belief problem, it's an obedience problem. Have you repented? Have you changed direction? Has there been a moment where you've been heartbroken over your sin and you've fallen in love with the Son? The most important thing I can teach you is how you can repent. 
And it means that you are heartbroken over the fact that you've committed cosmic treason against God. But that you're in love with the Son and you want to follow him with all that you are. So do you believe in his name? Have you repented? And here's the last one. Do you follow him? You know what I didn't say? Have you followed him? Current tense. Present tense. Do you follow him? These are the three questions I'd like each of us to wrestle with internally. Because if you say no to any of these, you might just have mindless and heartless worship rather than understanding that you're an adopted son or daughter of the God most high. So we're going to take up an offering after I've offended everybody. Hallelujah. And as I pass these bags and the bags are passed, just pass them to people close to you and then just pass them back and we'll, we'll grab the offering at the end. But here's the thing. We don't give because we have to. We give because God has redeemed us. He's changed us. He's given us all of our treasure. He's given us all of our time. He's given us all of our talents. And we are called to use them for the glory of his name. So as the bags go past, if you have even an inkling of have to, just let it pass. It's okay. But if this is your act of worship, we want to give you that opportunity to worship by actually giving of your offering, giving of this, so God can make disciples of all nations using COV as a part of that. Would you close your eyes? Would you bow your heads as I pray? Father, I ask that this time of worship in both the offering but also in the music would be a time that would encourage each of us that we would not be found as people that worship with a heartless and mindless kind of duty, but we would do it out of devotion because you are good and you are worthy of our praise. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just hear your word, but we'd actually put it into action. And as we do, God, would you grow us more into your likeness. We pray this in Jesus' name.